Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Open your word to us and set our hearts on fire for you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. So last summer, my daughter Alina was moving across the country to attend graduate school at the University of Florida. And since we had to get her car there too somehow, I thought, road trip. I had always wanted to take a cross-country trip to see the sights and visit some friends, so I ended up driving the entire 4,400 miles, and it was a wonderful trip. I'm going to put my itinerary up, up there. You can see I started out on I-90 heading east through eastern Washington, Idaho, and Montana. In South Dakota, I got to visit, finally, Mount Rushmore and Crazy Horse and the Badlands and Wall Drug, <laughs> which is a fascinating stop for those of you who know. It's a fun, relaxing break for travelers. I then visited friends in Minneapolis, Chicago, and Wisconsin before heading down to New Orleans and then finally South Carolina, and then Gainesville, Florida. Uh, on the way down from Wisconsin to New Orleans, I decided to stop in Memphis, Tennessee, in memory of my father. <laughs> no, I'm not claiming that Elvis Presley is my father. But there is a connection between Elvis and my father. Both of them were born on January 8th, 1935. So whenever I think of Elvis, I also think of my dad. And therefore, I decided to visit Graceland, Elvis's home in Memphis. And there I got to stand by the king. <laughs> and you can't, you know, just remember the young Elvis. You also have to remember the older Las Vegas Elvis as well, right? So there I am. <laughs> There's another connection between my dad and Elvis. Both passed away while they were relatively young. Elvis died when he was only 42 years old. My father died a bit later in life at 64 years old from stomach cancer. That was by far the saddest moment of my life. My father was born in North Korea. He came down to South Korea before the Korean War. He attended the Korean Naval Academy and served in the Korean Marines. And my family immigrated to the US after he finished his service with the Marines. Here's a picture of my family, my parents, father, mother, and I think that's me. So my father was a dedicated family man and an elder at his church. I got to tell you, he had more friends than anyone I ever knew. It's been over 23 years 
since my dad died. And I still think about him every day. I miss him very much. And I'm still proud, so very proud, to be a son. But that was an extremely difficult time for my family. It was a situation that just hurt. One thing I remember about that time was the silence of God. We had scores of people fervently praying for my father. And in response, nothing. At least at the time, it felt like nothing. Craig Barnes, who's president of Princeton Theological Seminary, says about this type of silence, to be clear, this is not the welcome silence that comes as a nice respite from our noisy lives. This is the silence that shows up late at night when a child has a dangerously high temperature. Or it shows up at tombstones when you go to visit someone. The silence appears when someone is unpacking Christmas stockings and, and finds the monogram stocking of a loved one who died that year. They don't know whether to hang it up or not. Silence happens after the boss leaves someone's office having tried to explain about downsizing. This is the unwanted silence, the one that rips away all of our explanations. You get a phone call from a friend who lives on the other side of the country. She calls to tell you that her teenage son committed suicide. And you stammer, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. Right. You don't know what to say. Only a holy word can stand up to the silence. This is why people have funerals in churches. This is why, what they hope for. Whether they, I mean, this is why people come to, to church. I mean, uh, whether they realize it or not, this is what they hope for. They're wondering, how about God? Does God have a word that can stand up to this silence? And there's only one word that can do it. It's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us on a silent night long ago. This is the only thing that can fill the silence. The amazing thing is that even Jesus himself, though he was the son of God, seems to have experienced this kind of silence. You know, we usually read this text of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane during Holy Week in Lent. But heaven knows we can experience grief in any season. And this story can speak to us at any time. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. It's a garden in a grove of olive trees at the base of the Mount of Olives. 
Peter, James, and John are the same three disciples who accompanied Jesus unto the mountain where he was transfigured. And on that occasion, the three disciples fell on their faces in awe and fear. Now in Gethsemane, it will be Jesus who falls to the ground in a state of sorrow and humility before his heavenly Father. Three times he prays. It's an indication of desperate pleading with God. Jesus encourages the, the three disciples to stay awake, and he means more than simply fighting off sleep. He's urging them to watch alertly for the coming of the kingdom. They're to be always ready for the coming of God's deliverance. Like the wise bridesmaids in Jesus' parable, they are to be prepared and to keep awake, for no one knows the day nor the hour of the Lord's return. Tom Long notes, Jesus is full of sorrow and distress, like the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43. Troubled, he prays to God for an easier road that allows his life to be spared. Jesus, who was tempted three times by Satan to compromise his identity and vocation, now faces a threefold temptation from within. In the coming hours, Peter will also face temptation three times, and three times he will fail and deny Jesus. But here, Jesus struggles over temptation in intimate address to God. Notice he says, My Father, and his compliant petition, Your will be done, are precisely what he taught his disciples to say in the Lord's Prayer. And his unswerving obedience to God's will, his willingness to travel the hard way and to pass through the narrow gate, is a model for his followers. Jesus wants fellowship with his disciples. They prefer the sleep of avoidance. Jesus is alert to God's will. Peter, James, and John slumber through his time of anguish. While his disciples doze and falter, he leaves the place of prayer, clear about his vocation and resolute in his purpose, and he gives them a wake-up call. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, notice that in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible that we have in our pews, the translators add a semicolon when Jesus prays. Look, it says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, semicolon, yet not what I want, but what you want. And then uh, when he prays a second time, a comma is added. It says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, comma, your will be done. Now, for those of you who are involved in the Immerse Bible study, you already know that the original Greek manuscripts do not contain any punctuation. But I agree with the interpreters who have decided to add these punctuation marks here. I believe this is a valid interpretation given the context. Jesus struggling and grieving, praying three times to have this cup taken away from him. The semicolon and comma added here by later translators alert us to the vast distance between when Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me, to when he finally arrives at, thy will be done. It didn't happen immediately. Jesus did not want to be there. This is clear from verse 37, 
which says that Jesus began to be grieved and agitated. The word grieved comes from the Greek word lupe, which means pain or sorrow. And then in the next verse, Jesus says, I am deeply grieved, even to death. He's literally saying, my soul, uh, the Greek word is suke, we get the English word psyche from that. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The word is perilupos, using the Greek word lupe again, but adding the prefix peri, which means around. So Jesus is saying he is literally surrounded by grief and pain. He is so overcome with sorrow that he feels close to death. The same word is used in Mark chapter 6, the story of when King Herod was so pleased by the dancing of his wife's daughter that he offered her whatever she wanted, up to half his kingdom. When the girl requested the head of John the Baptist on a platter, the king was exceedingly sorry, perilupos, surrounded by grief. This word is also used in Luke chapter 18, the story of the rich ruler who was told by Jesus to sell everything that he owned and give the money to the poor and then follow him. But when the rich ruler heard this, he became sad, perilupos, for he was very rich. And the Gospel of Luke also shows how intensely Jesus struggled. In Luke chapter 22, it says, Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Now, although important early manuscripts lack these verses, they were known to Christian writers of the second century and reflect tradition from the first century concerning the suffering of Jesus. And other translations capture Jesus' struggle. The Cotton Patch Gospel says, O oh my Father, if it's possible, please relieve me of this agony. But I want you to decide, not me. And the message says, This sorrow is crushing my life out. My Father, if there is any way, get me out of this but please, not what I want. You, what do you want? Our senior pastor, George Hinman, reminds us that prayer is authorizing God to direct our circumstances, even when it's against our desires. Jesus truly wrestled with what he had to face, and he prayed earnestly all night. If any of you are familiar with the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, that musical does a great job of portraying the intense struggle within Jesus before he finally accepted God's will. It's a good reminder that Jesus was fully human as well as fully God. The annotated notes in the uh, NRSV says this, Jesus does not desire death, but accepts God's will, even including death. Jesus would not accept for himself the possibility of anything contrary to God's will. Remember, prayer is the free act of surrender to a will greater than our own. Now, this sermon series has focused on the gift of living under God's authority. Jesus personifies this type of true authority. 
Um, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter attacks with a sword, he says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now that's authority. But how often, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which says it must happen in this way? Jesus has the authority to act, but he chooses to submit to God's will instead. So, getting back to my father's death, how does this passage help? Like I said, it's been more than 23 years since my dad died, and I still think about him every single day. I still miss him very much. But I take comfort in this. God carries me through my pain with a peace and joy that even death can never quench. The, the advantage that we have reading this passage today instead of during Lent is that we've gone through Holy Week. We've experienced Easter. And therefore, we can put Gethsemane in the context of Jesus' resurrection his final victory over death. I mean, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. He's victorious over the forces of evil and death. I heard a saying once, your valley is not your finale. I love that. Your valley is not your finale. Death no longer has the last word. Now, this does not minimize Jesus' suffering. It also doesn't mean that the resurrection only relates to everlasting life in heaven, but has no connection to our lives here on earth. But what does that connection look like? I remember uh, hearing a story by Tony Campolo about a time when he was in McMinnville, Oregon, in a Nazarene church. And while leading a service, put his head in his pocket, and he noticed that he had a vial of oil there that somebody had given him several weeks before. On an impulse, he said, if anybody needs healing, please come forward at the end of the service. Now, let me tell you, I, I don't expect much to happen, but if you're willing to do it anyway, come on forward. And, and please, don't be in a hurry, because... I want to talk with each of you in depth and, and get a feel for where you're coming from and what's going on in your life. To his astonishment, about 30 people came forward. It was amazing as he talked with people and prayed with them and anointed their heads with oil. He found that most of them didn't have physical ailments. People were suffering from broken marriages, and various addictions, and so on. The most common ailment in that group was depression. But there were some physically ill people. So a few weeks later, he got a telephone call when he returned home. And a lady said, we were in the McMinnville Church of the Nazarene when you were there, and you laid hands on my husband for healing. He had cancer, and Campolo immediately picked it up. Had 
cancer. Had cancer. So he said, had cancer? And she said, well, he, he recently died. And he thought, oh, terrific. Campolo prays for you and, and you're a goner. So he apologized profusely. And she said, please, you don't understand. When he walked into that church, he hated God. He was 58 years old. He wanted to see his grandchildren grow up. And he was going to die. And he knew it. And so he hated God. He would lie in bed and curse God. And the more bitter he became towards God, the nastier he treated everyone around him. No one wanted to be in the same room with him. He was so angry, so bitter, so mean. So we tried to keep our distance. You laid hands on him. You anointed his head with oil. You prayed for him. And he went out of that church transformed. He was full of joy, full of ecstasy. The last week of our lives together was the best week that we've ever had. We sang hymns. We remembered the past. We told stories. I hated to go to bed at night. It was the best week of our lives, and I'm just calling to say thank you. And then she said this. He wasn't cured, but he was healed. He wasn't cured, but he was healed. That is profound. Think about it. Cures don't have any lasting significance. Even the miracles of Jesus, except for his own resurrection, had no lasting significance. I mean, he would go heal the, the sick and the lepers. He even raised up Lazarus from the dead. And then what happened? Well, they eventually died. He fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of fish, fish and bread. And the next day, they were hungry again. If somebody's cured, that's great. We want to celebrate that. But it's only temporary. I mean, I hate to break, break this news to you, but uh, all of us are going to die someday. But will we choose to be healed? The healing of a person's spirit has eternal significance. My father was not cured of his cancer. It took his earthly life. But my father had a sure and firm belief in the power of the resurrection. He was not cured, but he was certainly healed as he leaned into the arms of Jesus. He received what the Jews call shalom, healing, salvation, wholeness, and peace. As some of you know, uh, this has been a rather trying year in my household. Last fall, uh, my wife, Deb, underwent major reconstructive foot surgery just as I was learning that I had stomach cancer. Now, Deb has made great progress in her recovery, but it's been a long, long 
difficult road. And as I shared earlier, I have responded well to my chemo treatments, but stage four cancer is no joke. As some of you know, uh, Deb is the pastor of Magnolia Presbyterian Church. Magnolia's music director, Rob Jones, and organist, Cindy Bain, wrote a song earlier this year with people like us in mind who have been going through trials of various kinds. We're going to play the song as a response to this sermon, but first I want to highlight for you one of my favorite lines from the song. If you come to me when the world is bleak and your days are dark and long, I will give you strength when your will is weak. I will fill your heart with song. Remember, your valley is not your finale. Gethsemane never was and never will be the end of the story. We may not always be cured, but we are all invited to be healed through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ our Lord. God is standing by even now to give us strength and fill our hearts with song. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that you understand what it's like to grieve and to sorrow. Thank you, God, that Gethsemane was not the end of the story. Thank you, God, that through your resurrection, we can all be healed. Be with us now and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.